Welcome, everyone, to It's a Rap with Rap. I am your host, Ron Rappaport. This podcast features people who have overcome life's challenges and adversities, people who can inspire and motivate, and people who can educate us on an assortment of topics. My special guest today is Ari Schoenbrunn. He is a loving father, devoted husband, 9-11 survivor, former chief administrative officer of Cantor Fitzgerald, one of the world's leading financial services firms, which occupied the top five floors of Tower One of the World Trade Center. Author of Miracles and Fate on 78, motivational speaker and a messenger of hope and renewal, and truly an all-around good guy. Ari describes himself as a speaker who wrote a book rather than a writer who likes to speak. Ari was on the 78th floor of Tower One to change elevators to go to the 101st floor when the plane hit on September 11th, 2001. He helped a colleague suffering third degree burns to safety and was thrown into the national spotlight thereafter. He is here today to give us a firsthand account about survival and his new purpose in life following that fateful day. Ari, so glad to have you. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Ron, thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. I'm really excited to be here. Great. Hey, let's start at the beginning. Uh, our, our audience always likes to know, you know, the, who we're talking to. What were your early years like growing up in New York and your years living uh, in Israel? Oh, okay. We're going way back. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I grew up in a in a traditional an, an Orthodox. Uh, I'm an Orthodox Jew. I grew up in an Orthodox home, uh, middle class family, nothing special. You know, I went to uh, a, a yeshiva and um, things were, you know, things were I was a normal, happy kid. Uh, my parents, when I was 14 years old, my parents made a decision that they wanted to move to Israel uh, they took um, myself and my younger brother, my older brother and older sister actually had already moved and were actually living there at the time. And um, it was difficult, um, you know, going to Israel, not really speaking the language, um, you know, 14 years old. I mean, that's, you know, you know that, that's a prime age. I was leaving all my friends behind. I was, you know, starting a new life. It was, it was difficult. I remember there was a point in time where I came and my parents threw me into a dormitory. Wow. So for school. <laughs> yeah. So I was in a room with five other, five other Israelis who did not like me only because I was American. Um, it was tough they, back. It was tough in the seventies. It really, really was. They, they, what did they think you were spoiled? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they, you know, they used to hold up, uh, they used to hold up fingers, you know, uh, yeah. like, you know, the peace signs. And you say yeah. Villa Volvo, Villa Volvo. That's all you guys want. You know, it's like, really. <laughs> um, but and I, I literally I remember I cried to my dad um, about halfway through the year. And I said, I want to go back to the States. You know, I can't do this anymore. And my dad said to me, my dad was very, very, a very wise man. And he said to me, look, I'll tell you what, you finish the year out. And if you still want to go back, I'll send you back. Okay. You know, he he understood, yeah. Yeah. you know, and yeah. of course, by the time the year ended, I had made friends. I was I, I spoke the language, you know, things, things had changed. So, you know, he was he was just a smart man. And um, so I went to high school there, went to college there. And um, in the I graduated in the late 70s. 
And the economy in Israel was terrible. I mean, there were no jobs to be had, nothing going on. So I picked myself up and I moved back to the States. And um, yeah. yeah. So so uh, where did you work before you went to Cantor Fitzgerald? So I my my career started at uh, a company called United Mizrahi Bank, which was uh, which is an Israeli bank. And I worked in the subsidiary, which was called UMB Bank and Trust Company. And I started my basically my Wall Street career started there. Um, I worked in the trading room. And I actually worked my way up to becoming uh, to running the trading room. I was there for 10 years and um, it was a very unstable situation because in the 10 years that I was there, I had gone through five presidents. That's a lot. Uh, Yeah, it really was. So when, you know, when the fifth president came along, I went like, you know what, I've had enough. So um, I left there and I did a short stint. Uh, at a commodity broker, as a, at a commodities trading house where I traded uh, foreign currencies. And uh, timing for me was terrible because um, about a year or two later, the bottom fell out of the currency market. Guys shut down their, their uh, desks. Uh, I was out on the street. And that's when I met um, Howard Lutnick, who was the at the time the president of Canna Fitzgerald. And we got to talking and, um, you know, he said, I need a guy like you, you know, wow. are you interested? And I went yeah. like, sure. And uh, the rest was history. That's that's amazing. Tell us how. Uh, well, you just told us how you came to work for Canada Fitzgerald, but what was the work life like on those top floors of the World Trade Center? What was it like up there? So. It was amazing. I have to be honest with you. Um, being on, yeah, it really was. You really were on top of the world. Yeah. Um, it was. I remember days where you would look out the window, and you would see. Um, all you'd see is white clouds, and wow. one thing sticking up through the clouds was the point of the Empire State Building. That's all you wow. saw. You saw the point of the Empire State Building and everything else was just like white clouds. It was magnificent. I was so sorry. You know, back then the phones didn't have uh, cameras on. Them. Right, it was too bad because right. I trust me, I would have taken a picture of it. It was so <laughs> yeah, amazing. It, it amazing. was. And it was. It was really great. You know, I looked out over three bridges. You could see Kennedy Airport from my office. I mean, it was a long was ways amazing. away. Yeah, it was amazing. It really, really was. Um, and nobody ever thought, you know, I mean, I certainly didn't, um, you know, never imagined that a, a thing like 9-11 can happen. Although um, I do. I remember now I wasn't at Canada at the time. I wasn't working at the time. But in February, um, in February of 93. Right. Uh, we had the uh, the the bomb that, uh, you know, in the garage. Yeah. Um, so that was about six months. That was in February of 93. I started working there in October of 93. So I missed that episode. Um, but it was really, it, it was amazing. It was it, the, the building was a magnificent piece of architecture. Um, it was, it was really, you really felt, believe it or not, you know, you felt really, really good about it. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was, uh, I mean, I, I had gone through a, a whole bunch of different uh, positions. I, I was running the business administration department, which was monitoring all of our expenses. Uh, I did that for several years and then I was tapped to lead the, uh, accounts receivables group, uh, global accounts receivables, which was way out of control. 
um, and you know, I, I had good recommendations. And so uh, the, the, the CFO of the company tapped me for it. And um, that was the job that I was doing when 9-11 happened. So Ari, can you describe for us, what was your outlook on life pre 9-11 and uh, how you viewed your career and your family life? Uh, how did you view all that? So to me at the time, my job was the most important thing in the world. Nothing trumped my job. I had, you know, visions. Remember, it's Wall Street, right? Wall Street, right, right. bunch of bunch of multimillionaires, bunch of investment bankers, you know, and that was kind of like, you know, I said, that's what I'm going to be. That's what I'm going to do. And I didn't want to let anything stop me from doing that. And I just went, you know, full fledged. I would be working from literally from seven o'clock in the morning till nine, 10, 11 o'clock at night. Um, that was the most my family, you know, they took a back seat. Everything, everything took a backseat to my job because I all I wanted to do was become that wealthy banker or that wealthy Wall Street guy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and that was that was my life. I, you know, um, it's funny because, you know, my kids used to say to me, Daddy, can you come to the school play? You know, I've right. got the lead role and I'd say, no, sorry, daddy's got to work. You know, daddy, can you come to can you go to mock trial? That's that's after school. So that's after work. So you could be there. Right. And I go, no, daddy's got to work late. You know, daddy's got to yeah. work. That was always the refrain. That was your passion. That was it. Yeah. Until, until that day. Right. So now we're going to start into the day. So describe to us how your morning started out before you ever arrived at the World Trade Center? How did, how did the morning go? So honestly, the morning was like any other morning, all right? I had gone to synagogue. I go to synagogue every morning, um, and it was exactly one week before Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. And so there was there was actually, um, you know, we, we actually started, uh, services started actually earlier than normal because there was so much more to say. Right. Um, and I got I got home after services and it was about 20 to seven in the morning. I had my briefcase over my shoulder I had my cup of, cup of coffee in my hands. And I yelled up to my wife, bye, hun, love you. See, ya. I yelled up to my kids, bye, kids. I have a great day in school. And I started to walk out the door like I did every day. Yeah. And all of a sudden, a voice from the second floor comes down and my wife yells down to me. She goes, did you do Baruch's book order? Now, Baruch is my third child. He was eight years old at the time. And I, uh, I discovered something. <laughs> I, I, really, I, I discovered that teachers have a wonderful way of torturing parents. It's <laughs> called the scholastic book order. Now, if your audience is laughing the way my audience laughed, they obviously know what that's all about. Yeah, you know, they yeah. handed out these pamphlets and my son was no different than any other kid. He wanted every book in the pamphlet that he wasn't going to read and every game in the pamphlet that he wasn't going to play. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it was like I said, it was one week before the Jewish New Year. My wife, who's a school principal, just opened school. And so she was busy preparing for the holiday and preparing school. And she had no patience for my son. And she said, it's your job. And I went like, OK, I'll take care of it. Um, but as I said to you before, I was working such long hours that yeah. that night, by the time I got home, he was sleeping. So I never did it with him. So she said, did you do Baruch's book order? I go, no, I didn't. She goes, you're not leaving the house until you do that book order. Yeah. You better listen to mama, right? You, <laughs> you got it. I said, I'm a Jew. I'm a good Jewish husband. I listened to my wife. 
So I put my briefcase down, put my cup of coffee down, walked into my kitchen, proceeded to negotiate with my eight-year-old for the next yeah. 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I whittled him down to two books. That's um, good. Yeah. That's... I thought it was real good. How many did he want originally? Oh, my God. It's like every book in the pamphlet. You know, yeah. I want this. I want that. You know how kids yeah. are. Yeah. And uh, what was interesting was the two pit, the two books that he picked were from a series called Survivor. Wow. That was, you know, when those books came, that was I'm saying like, man, God, do you have a sense of humor or what? You know? Yeah. 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 Now, very important. And, and I want your audience to hear this and to know this. OK, sure, sure. That book order was actually due on Monday. But my son left his pamphlet in school on Friday. Sure. Now, if he would have brought that pamphlet home on Friday, yep. I would have done it with him on Sunday. Right. And I would have been sitting at my desk at eight o'clock in the morning on Tuesday. And you would be interviewing somebody else because I'd be dead. Yeah. yeah. But because he left that pamphlet in school on Friday, right. I'm around today to tell you my story. Thank God. You know? So yeah. and you'll see a bunch of a bunch of things like that happen throughout the course of the day, which led me to believe that just God was just looking out for me. Yeah. You know, uh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. So um, so that 20 minutes set me back 40. All right. Because right. the later you go, the right. longer it takes. And I didn't get to the trade center until 20 minutes to nine. You know, I learned I, I learned something, you know, when you're when you're let me break away for a moment from this incredible journey from danger that we are listening to on that fateful day in September 2001. Author Maria Balistrieri has written her memoir of resilience through faith, family and friends that chronicles her journey going through a breast cancer diagnosis and her survival. This inspirational memoir gives the reader a detailed view of the author's life pre and post diagnosis of breast cancer written from a woman's perspective. All stages of her battle with breast cancer are covered. The reader is transformed into the moments she experiences. The author's experiences are conveyed in a genuine and authentic way which evokes emotion and elicits feelings in the reader which parallel the writer's feelings. A few poems are dispersed throughout the text which allow the writer to express herself in a creative and wonderful way. As the author's former life disappears, she learns to live what other survivors call the new normal. She begins a new unique hobby and her friendships grow exponentially. It is not just a hobby but a floating support group which she relies on to this day. The reader learns many new things reading this memoir about the author's journey and issues regarding breast cancer. Many pictures are included from her life experiences at the end of the book, thereby adding more beauty, excitement, and completeness to her memoir. This book is creative, original, vivid, and organized to give the reader maximum pleasure. The book would make a great gift for someone going through the breast cancer journey to acquire an understanding of what feelings and emotions are involved from a survivor and to become inspired and motivated to make it through victoriously. The book is available through Amazon in paperback and digital version and from Barnes & Noble in paperback and nook book version. The information for the book will be listed in the podcast notes and featured on the podcast Facebook page and website under the sponsor tab. Son uh, said, hey, uh, you know, you had to negotiate the, the scholastic book thing. People always say, uh, why, why, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me? And I learned now 
say, why is this happening for me? Because there's a reason. You know? Absolutely. And I, I could go into stories, but I. But right. But uh, yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. But, but absolutely. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Um, and that's why I said you'll see other other yeah. coincidences, so to speak, right, that happened right. during the course of the day, um, which kept me alive. Yeah. But so listen. To, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead if you want to say. No, I just no. I was. Just oh, okay. Gonna... So so you arrive at the building. Right. Okay. Uh, I want you to tell us how things ensued. I would really like you to uh, take us take us through the the whole thing. Where, where you're going from from floor to floor so we don't miss anything. I want the audience to know what it was like, what you went through. So go ahead sure. and take, take us through uh, when you enter the building. Right. So I come into the building. It's 20 minutes to nine, which right. is, you know, 40 minutes later than I, I would normally be there. And um, you couldn't take an elevator all the way from the lobby to the 101st floor. Oh. You had to take an elevator from the lobby to the 78th floor. That was an express elevator. And 78 was a sky lobby. So there was nothing up there except, you know, uh, escalators and elevators. Right. And um, and there were about 12 of these elevators and they were huge, huge elevators. They fit like 50 people in them. It was unbelievable. And they were the fastest elevators in the United States. There was one actually that went from the lobby all the way up to Windows on the World, which was on the 106th floor. And it did it in like under a minute. Your ears oh. used to pop when sure. you took that I elevator. Bet. It was yeah. unbelievable. Anyway, so I'm sitting there waiting. And the first elevator that comes down is all the way on the right side of the lobby. So I ran down to the other side of the lot, to the right side of the lobby, and I got into the elevator, took it up to 78. When I got up to 78 and I got out of the elevator, I realized that the elevator, the next elevator that I need to catch to get to my office on 101 was all the way on the left side of the sky lobby. So I get out of the elevator, I hang a left and I start walking towards that bank of elevators. And I remember it was really, really nice. It was, it was floor to ceiling windows. So it was a lot of natural light. It was very pretty. I must have been about eight feet from that bank of elevators when as best as I can describe, there was an explosion. I thought a bomb had gone off in the elevator. The entire building shook. The lights went out, the place filled with smoke, and I was literally thrown off my feet. I was on the ground. Wow. I'll tell you, I was never so scared in my life. And I heard people yelling fire in the elevator. And I remember thinking to myself, of course, there's a fire in the elevator. A bomb just went off in there. Yeah, 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 that's what I thought. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What did you know? Yeah. So I'm looking around. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. And I see in between two banks of elevators that there is a light on. So I figured that an emergency light is probably a good place to go. But there was a lot of smoke. And I remember as a kid, they, they, you know, they taught us about, you know, smoke and fire. You, what do you do when there's a lot of smoke? You stay low to the ground, right? Right, right. I literally crawled, wow. literally crawled to where thick. I was. That smoke yeah. was pretty thick, yeah. I literally crawled to that light. And then I got up and I looked around and I went behind the bank of elevators and there was a door there. And I opened the door and sure enough, there was an office there. It was a security office. Now I'm going to tell you something. I had been in that building over eight years. I never knew that that office existed. Wow. And I walked, I walked in there and there was a guy who was the, the fire warden for the floor. And I, I look at him and I see, I said, to him, you know, what do we do? Where do we go? The guy looks at me and goes, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I didn't know. 
Of course he didn't know. We had no idea what had happened. Right. So I figured, you know, I got to find a way out. I walk back outside into the hall and I bump into a coworker of mine. Her name was Virginia DiChiara. Virginia was on the elevator that I was about to get on when that plane hit. And I'll never forget. She described to me the situation. She said to me, when the doors of the elevator started to close and when the plane hit, they jammed and they were open about a foot and the walls of the elevator collapsed, the ceiling collapsed. There was a cable in the elevator that was that snapped, was sparking in the elevator. The jet fuel came down the sides of the elevator and it was ignited by a spark and there was a wall of fire. Wow. There were three people in that elevator. There was Roy Bell, Virginia and Renee. Roy Bell was the first one to jump through the fire out the doors, and he suffered second-degree burns. Virginia jumped out right after him, and she suffered third-degree burns. Wow. And Renee, who was the last one out, yeah. she, she died. She died right then and there. She, she died from her burns. Um, I don't think it was right then and there, but she just she didn't survive. She didn't you know, she it. got yeah. to a hot. She did get to a hospital, I think. I don't know how. But she did and she she died. I wow. mean, that's how severe. So, you know, look at the, the 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 difference between life and death that day, at least for these three people was six, eight, ten seconds. That's sure. it. Yeah. You know, for yeah, me, Roy, Roy Bell jumps out in second degree and right. a second later, she's got third degree. Burn. Right. Yeah. Right. It was. Almost, so she sees me. And she says to me, Ari, thank God, please help me. And whatever you do, please don't leave me. She goes, I'm in so much pain. And here's the irony. Virginia and I were not good friends. She had been hired a year before by Cantor Fitzgerald as an internal auditor. And the first department she audited was mine. And needless to say, she didn't give me very good marks. As a matter of fact, she almost got me fired. And there we were. Yeah. And you know what? All I saw was another human being who was in trouble. And I was the guy that God put there to help her. And I said, no matter what, I will help you. I will not leave you. And we will get out of here. Our past just did not matter. Not at that point. Yeah. She was just another human being in big trouble. Okay. And that's it. (sighs) Yeah. How how, How bad? How bad was she? She uh, was, she, let me tell you something. People ask me, how do you know they were third degree burns? You know what I said? When you see third degree burns, you know, Yeah. I mean, her clothes were burnt. Her hair was singed. You know, the, the, literally the skin was hanging off of her arms. I mean, she was just a mess. God. The only good, the only, the, the lucky part was, and it's kind of funny to say that, but before she jumped through the fire, she put her hands over her face. So her face did not get burned and neither did the palms of her hand. So, and I understand that was, you know, that kind of like what saved her life. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was unreal. So, um, you know, I brought her into that office, sat her down, gave her something, you know, gave her some water to drink. Cause we still didn't know how to get out. Right. And then finally um, the fire warden says, okay, we can get out stairwell on the left. And I remember thinking stairwell on the left, you know, from that point forward, anytime I walked into a building, yeah, I, I always look for these little signs. You know what they say? They exit. say 
exit. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And I look for those signs when I walk into a building because I never know. And they may save my life because they certainly did that day. He did, said, you, did, did you know that, that there was a stairwell? there? I had no clue. No the only clue. thing I knew were elevators and two escalators at the end of the at the end of the uh, sky lobby that went up uh, one or two flights. That was it. I had no idea about stairwells, nothing. Yeah. And uh, so we looked around. He said, still on the left. I looked up and sure enough, I find the exit sign. They had to go around a bend and there was a door. And um, there were a couple of people there besides us, uh, besides the four of us. There were like six or eight other people. Some guy ran ahead and he opened the door and he said, I found it. And I looked inside and sure enough, it was a stairwell, but there were lights on. And I thought to myself, you know what? They're probably emergency lights. And who knows how long they're going to they're going to last. Right. Right, right. So I turned around to the people behind me. I said, does anybody have a flashlight? Thinking to myself, if the lights go out, it'll be pitch black. Ron, two people were holding up flashlights. You're kidding. And I'll never forget. I was thinking to myself, where did you get a flashlight from? And why are you holding, you know, why are you carrying it? But I said, listen, folks, if the lights go out, nobody panic. We will have light. So back in back in those days, the the cell phones didn't have lights. No, we didn't have flashlights. You know, the smartphones. The 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 closest thing to a smartphone we had was the uh, StarTac flip phone, which had a um, which had a a, a, an address book in it. That was a major thing. You know, you had an address book in your phone. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, and the next thing I did was I looked down at Virginia's feet, and I said, "Thank God she's wearing flats," because you know what, Ron. There yeah. were high-heeled shoes in that stairwell all the way down. I Women had just kicked them off to get down as fast as they could. Sure. You know? Plus, they didn't want to trip. Yeah. So we started to head down. It was the fire warden, Roy Bell, myself, and Virginia. We walked in a line. I remember that because I told Virginia, if you feel faint, if you feel like you're going to fall, fall forward, fall on me, I'll carry you. And we started to head down. Now, we got down three flights and okay. and as far as I'm concerned, one of the biggest miracles of the day happened to me, besides the fact that I wasn't killed when the plane hit, my cell phone rang. Now, people today look at me like I'm crazy. So what? But back then, forget it. In the trade center, you could never get signal on your phone. Never. I used to be, uh, you know, standing by the window of my office, you know, hello, can you hear me? Can you hear? Remember that commercial? Can you hear me now? Yeah, Yeah. they filmed it in my office. Okay. (laughs) So, but there I was on a 75th floor. Yeah. Right. We down, we, we got down three flights and my phone rang. I was so shocked. I picked it up. I went, hello. It was my wife on the other end of that phone. Wow. And she was crying and she was telling me something about a plane going into the building. I had no idea what she was talking about. I said to her, Joyce, I'm in a stairwell. I'm on the 75th floor. I'm on my way down. Now is not a good time. Yeah. <laughs> I said, I'll call you when I get out of the building. And I hung up the phone, not realizing, of course, it would be hours until I spoke to her again. Sure. Now, here's the kicker. Roy Bell says to me, oh, my God, you got signal on your phone. Can I use your phone to call my wife? I said, of course. I handed him my phone. He dialed. He had sent nothing. Dead. Wow. I literally looked up. I said, thank you, God, because at least now I knew that my wife knew that I wasn't killed when the first plane hit. Right. That was certainly comforting. 
We went down. We got down to about the 50th floor. Virginia says to me, Ari, I can't go on. Can't do it. My first instinct was I'll have her sit down, rest a little bit, and then we'll get up and keep going. And then I thought to myself, you know what? If she sits down, she may never get up. And if she doesn't get up, she's going to die. I mean, there was no doubt in my mind. And I said, you know what? Not on my watch. Okay. Right. I wasn't going to let that happen. I said, no, Virginia, you can do this. And some, a couple of people had uh, bottles of Poland spring water. We we're pouring it on her arms to give her relief from the burns and giving yeah. her a drink. And, uh, and we continued down. So Ari, would you say uh, at that stage, you pretty much went with your gut feeling on, on how to do things? Oh, without a doubt. You know, people yeah. say, how did you know how to do this? How did you know how to do that? And I Well, you know what? I don't know if it was instinct, if it was adrenaline. I don't know. OK, maybe it was God just guiding me. Who yeah. knows? Right. OK, but I just did. I felt I did whatever I felt was the right thing to do. Right. You know, who's, let's be real. Who's going to question me? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we continued on down. We got to the 38th floor. It was backed up with people to see the firefighters that stopped the people from going down as they were going up. Right. Um, so I remember I was really scared because she was a mess. And I started yelling out, is there a paramedic in the building? If you're a paramedic, I've got a burn victim here. We need help. If not, please step to the right and let us through. And they did. People just squeezed over as much as possible. Wow. And they literally opened a path for us to keep going down. That was amazing. Um, it, was we like, got it, down. Was, it was like parting the Red Sea. Uh, that's exactly what I was going to say. It was yeah. just like Moses parting the Red Sea. It was just like they just opened a path. Uh, we got down to about the eighth floor and there was water all over the place. Ankle deep running water. And I said, I remember I turned to Virginia. I said to Virginia, take it real slow, real slow. I mean, if she slips and falls, all right, it's game over. I don't yeah, care. You know, yeah, yeah. so we continued on down. Um, we got down to the first floor and the fire warden who's leading us this whole time keeps walking down. I go like, where are you going? He goes, we have to get out through the garage. All right. I turned to Virginia. I said, Virginia, we, we have to go down to the garage. You know, we've already been down 78 flights of stairs. What's another four or five. Right. And we continued on down. Yeah. We, we got down two flights and all of a sudden the door on the first floor opens up and some guy yells out, where are you people going? I said, we're going out through the garage. He goes, no, you can't get out through the garage. You've got to come back up here and come out through the first floor. Well, I told Virginia, we got to go back up two flights. She said a few things that I can't say in mixed company. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. Uh, and we went back up. Here is the other irony. Later, I learned there were people in that garage that never got out. Now, who was the guy who opened the door? I don't know, because I never saw him. I only heard the voice. And wow. why did he pick that moment to open yeah. the door? Yeah. I have no idea. So the, that, people, the people that didn't get out the garage, was it flooded or did it, or what happened? I, I just I, I don't know if the building collapsed. Yeah. Uh, if they were trapped. I, I don't know. All I know is I heard that people didn't get out. Right. Um, and uh, so, you know. We come back upstairs, we get out through the first floor and there are cops and firefighters and they're telling us to go through the mall, through the atrium, you know, all the way until we finally got out on what on um, Church Street. Yeah. 
And, um, you know, and the cops and firefighters were there telling everybody uptown, uptown. People were literally running uptown because um, there was stuff that was falling down from the sky, you know, from the buildings. Sure. Um, but I stopped the cop and I said, look, I got a burn victim here. What do I do? Where do I go? He goes, go across the street in front of the Millennium Hotel. We're setting up a triage center there and there'll be ambulances. And that's what we did. We went across the street and sure enough, an ambulance pulls up. I get her into the ambulance and I breathe a sigh of relief. See, up until now, the only thing I can do is keep her spirits up. I couldn't help her medically. Right. And, you know, that was I think that was just as important. And now, oh, absolutely. And now finally, she's getting medical attention. So I breathe a sigh of relief. I step out of the ambulance. I turn around. I look up at the buildings and there was a guy standing next to me. And I said to him, excuse me, how did building two get on fire? And the guy looks at me like I'm crazy. He go, what are you talking about? Two jetliners went into the buildings. They're calling it a terrorist attack. I look at him like he's crazy. What are you talking about? You see, Ron, I never heard that second plane. Now, people wow. think people think I'm nuts. They think, how's that possible? You know what? I was so focused on yeah. the task at hand. It was my survival. It was Virginia's survival. You know, I had a mission and nothing was going to stop me. And I just blocked everything else out. Yeah, it was, just, it, it was probably tunnel vision. Yeah. yeah. You know, you, nothing else mattered. A hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent. So I never heard that second plane. I'm waiting for Virginia. I'm waiting for the ambulance to leave. I turned to the driver. I said, why aren't you leaving? He goes, we can't leave until we fill the ambulance. We're expecting a huge amount of casualties. Yeah. They wouldn't let Virginia lay down. She had to be sitting up and she was writhing in pain. She's because I, 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 I kept I kept checking on her every sure. few minutes. I kept jumping at the and she says, Ari, I'm, I, I'm, I can't do this. I'm you know, I'm I'm so much better. I said, Virginia, hang on, hang on. You're gonna be okay. You're gonna right. be okay. Finally, they fill the ambulance. And I'm thinking, great, you know, because really, Ron, once that ambulance leaves, there's only one place that I'm going to. And that's back to the building. Now, you ask me why? Because I'm looking for my friends. I'm looking for my coworkers. I'm looking to help. That's all I wanted to do. All right. That you, was my nature. You wanted to you wanted to go back and help people out of the out of the building. That's exactly right. Yeah. So um, when they uh, when they uh, the EMT turns around, and he says, all right, we're ready to go. Virginia turns to me and she says to me, Ari, you're coming with us. Now. <laughs> You know, I don't want to say I was in a comfort zone, but the reality is, as I said, I wanted to go help. And, you know, if I had to be someplace else or get someplace else, I would know how to do that from where I was because I knew the, the area, you know, yeah. getting into that ambulance and going to God knows where, yeah. you know, that right. exactly didn't exactly excite me. I said to Virginia, you're going to be OK. I'm going to get a hold of your mom. She asked me to call her mother. I yeah. said, I'm going to get a hold of your mom. And she's going to meet you at the hospital and you're going to be okay. She literally turns to the ambulance driver and says, we're not leaving unless he comes with us. Wow. I'm looking at the driver. He's looking at me. I see in his eyes. He's thinking this is not a cab service. I'm thinking I don't need a cab, but I turned to him. Finally, I said, you know what? Maybe for our own psychological well-being, maybe I should just come. He goes, fine. Hop into the front. And I got into the front of the ambulance and we pulled away. Something told you to get in that ambulance. We were one of only a few ambulances that actually got away from the scene that day. 
Wow. I have friends who are members of Atsala, which is a volunteer ambulance company. They showed me pictures of crushed ambulances at the scene. Wow. You know, and Virginia thanks me every day for saving her life. And I say, you got it all wrong. Who saved whose life? If yeah. she wouldn't have insisted that I get into that ambulance, I would have been standing at the base of that building. When it came down, I'd be dead. No doubt in my mind. Oh, yeah, for sure. But, for sure. you know, she insisted. I mean, who would have ever thought those buildings would collapse like that? Uh, not me. Yeah. Not, not me. I'll tell you something. I remember. I, I'm going to tell you something, Ryan. You know, uh, I'm sure you've seen it on TV. I know people have seen it on TV. It was a hundred times worse than what you saw on TV. Oh, I can imagine. All right. It was, it was, I, I mean, when I saw the hole in that building and the smoke and the fire, I mean, it was just like, I, I, I was in shock. I was in awe. I was just like, it was, you know, it was just unfathomable. Yeah. Yeah. So you are taking Virginia to the hospital and, and then what happens at the hospital? Right. So we, we get to the hospital and um, so right when we get there, there was, I'm telling you, there were gurneys, there were, there were doctors, nurses, supplies, everything. They were just ready and willing and able for the casualties. Yeah. The problem was there weren't a whole lot of casualties because you were either very, very much alive or very, very much dead. Yeah. There wasn't a whole lot in between. So I, we helped Virginia out of the ambulance, got her into the, the emergency room and the doctors and nurses with it. Once they put us into the room, they all disappeared. I'll never forget. It's like yesterday for me. And Virginia is Ari, I'm, I'm so much pain. I can't, I can't, you know, she couldn't find a spot for herself. And I'm going like, hello, hello. Like, where are the doctors? Where are the nurses? Yeah. I finally walked out into the middle of the floor and I said, hello, is there a doctor here? What's going on? I started yelling, literally yelling. And finally, a guy comes over and says, what's going on? What's all the yelling about? I says, do you see this poor woman here? She's suffering third degree burns and everybody just disappearing. And the guy looks, he says, who are you? I go, who am I? <laughs> he goes, yeah, you a relative? I said, no, I'm her coworker. I, I brought her in. He goes, you have to leave. Why do yeah. I have to leave? Because you're not a relative. Oh, my God. I'm going, are you? He goes, hospital protocol. Hospital protocol? We're under a terrorist attack and you're concerned about hospital protocol? Are you kidding me? It's unbelievable. Sorry, sorry, sir. You have to leave. And they literally threw me out. Wow. I turned to Virginia. I said, Virginia, listen, I got to go. But I promise I'll get a hold of your mom. And, you know, she's going to come and you're going to be okay. That was the mantra for the whole day. You're going to be okay. And, uh, and I left, I walked so, out and as I walk out, I heard somebody whispering like, wow, did you hear tower two collapsed? And literally it was St. Vincent's hospital, seventh Avenue and 12th street. And there was a clear view straight down to the trade center. And sure enough, tower two was gone. It's gone. Gone. Wow. You know, I, I, it was to me, it was unfathomable. I mean, it was 50,000 square feet per floor times 110 floors. And this thing was gone. Yeah. I had a pit in my stomach like you wouldn't believe. Oh, and I'm really I'm running so scared. You can't imagine. I'm trying to find a phone. It's a, it was a whole ordeal trying to find a phone. Um, you know, it was I don't know how much more of the story you want. Well, but, uh, let me ask you a question. 
when you got out of the when you got out of the hospital, uh, what was your uh, how were your clothes? Were you were they wet? You know, were did you look like a sweated up mess? I mean, I I was a mess. It was I I was sweaty. I was a mess. I tell you this: when I got home that night, my wife made me get undressed on the porch because <laughs> she says your clothes stank. It was horrible. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So. You know, again, I wasn't really paying much attention to how I looked. <laughs> right. I was just I was just curious. You yeah. Know, yeah. You know, what, I, what I the, had no idea. I'm going to be honest with you. Until I got home, I had no idea what I looked like. And I had made several stops along the way until I finally met with up with my brother. Um, But because, uh, you know, I, I went uptown. He was he was on 47th Street and 6th Avenue. And, you know, I got up to his to his place. And then we heard there was limited subway service and we went downstairs and sure enough, we were able to catch a train. We caught a We caught a subway out to Queens and I had a friend who owned a car service and I had spoken to her prior. And I said, I know you can't send a car to pick me up in the city because the city was shut down. It was totally locked down. Right. Uh, she said, I said, but if I get out of the city, can you send the car to pick me up? She goes, you know what? Here's your phone number. Twenty four seven. You can call this number. They'll give you whatever you want. Wow. And um, it was I forgot what time it was. We got out to Queens. But I called it and they said, you know, they'll be there in like uh, 20 minutes or something like that. And I looked at the the traffic, you know, yeah. Yeah. and like Queens Boulevard was at a dead stop. I went like half hour my butt. You know, that ain't happening. Yeah. Or whatever. I, I mean, it was at least an hour, at least an hour. But um the car finally comes. Um, and at that point in time, we had signal on our on our phones. My wife called his bro- his wife, told her to meet us at my house. And the two of us, uh, you know, took uh, took the car and got to my house. We got to my house at five thirty in the afternoon. Ron, there were 20 people in my living room and I had no less than 100 phone messages. Wow. And I rem- and, and you, know, you know, back then it wasn't digital. 